0: So, go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. So, Joel Gregory is the George W. Truett Endowed Chair of Preaching and Evangelism at Truett Theological Seminary at Baylor University. He's also the director of the Kyle Lake Center for Effective Preaching. In 2018, he was named as one of the 12 most effective preachers in the English speaking language. Voted on by more than 500 professors of preaching from universities and divinity schools and seminaries across America. Now that's, that's quite a, an honor. One of the top 12 most effective preachers in the English language and that's good news to us because today's message will be brought to you in English. He was recognized by the EK Bailey International Conference as a living legend. He in 19 or 2019, his peers at Baylor University named him an outstanding professor. He holds a BA summa cum laude from Baylor University, a Master of Divinity from Southwestern Theological Seminary, and a PhD in New Testament from Baylor University. He has served in several pastorates including one interim stint at uh, Sagamore Hill Baptist Church where he served alongside, wait for it, Monty Nichols. <laughs> and, and the circle has now come full circle here. How wonderful. He preaches on average to 20 states per year in more than 60 churches and conferences he served, uh, the, he, he delivered the concluding message at the Baptist World Congress in Durban, South Africa in 2015, and upon the invitation of President Jimmy Carter, he preached at the New Baptist Covenant celebration in 2008. Incidentally, Dr. Gregory, I was in the congregation that day, and it was the first time that this pastor heard Dr. Gregory preach, and, and I say this with all sincerity, that was a, transformational moment for me as he preached to all of us about what it means to welcome the stranger. There was a refrain, Joel, in your message that anyone can be a stranger sometime. And that had more of a shaping impact on this preacher's theology than you can possibly imagine. All of us can be strangers. Well, In addition to that, he has spoken to dozens of colleges, seminaries, and churches internationally. These include... Princeton University Chapel and Seminary, Spurgeon's College, London, Regent's Park College, Oxford, Kensington Temple, London, for 22 years at the E.K. Bailey International Conference on Expository Preaching, the IC3 Conference in Houston, Preaching Magazine's National Preaching Conference, the Evangelical Homiletics Society, and dozens of other conferences, conventions, and churches annually. In 2005, Gregory uh, has introduced or conducted nearly 100, I think this morning you said 114 Proclaimer's Place seminars in 18 states in the UK, in Paris, Rome, Greece, Israel, Germany, and Switzerland. Today is not his first sermon, is my point. <laughs> He's the author of five books, the anthologist of Baptist Global Preaching, and a regular contributor to PreachingToday.com. In addition, he also works closely with Compassion International, introducing that good work to pastors in such regions as Ecuador, Honduras, Guatemala, Haiti, and the Dominican Republic, as well as bridging a relationship between Baylor University and that great, that great ministry, uh, Compassion International. Gregory is named or married, uh, she, you may be named by Joanne, but you are married to Joanne Michelle Gregory who is a nurse and a Baylor graduate and an accomplished interpreter for the deaf. They have four adult children, and would you do me a favor and extend a warm Johns Creek Baptist welcome to our friend, Dr. Joel Gregory.
1: Let me express to your pastor, Dr. King, and my friend appreciation for the gracious invitation to be here on this World Communion Sunday, stand in this place with such reminders, and as an especial grace to see again after many years my dear friend of decades, Marty Nichols. I know you're blessed by his ministry of music here. With you. Monty, good to see you. I will avoid every temptation to go down memory lane with him. We shared some memorable and remarkable times together. Thank you for your overly generous introduction. Uh, that kind of thing makes me look around to see who's going to come in <laughs> and preach. That's most kind of you gazing at the glory. Our text this morning is found in the 17th chapter of John's Gospel. It's a text of words that were spoken about 12 hours before Jesus' crucifixion the next morning. He's at prayer. He prays for himself as he might and then for the eleven that remained in the upper room but then his gaze turns to you to all of those who would believe on him through the witness of those in the room and in John 17 20 here's his prayer if I could dare to say it for you for the church of the ages I ask not only on behalf of these, that is the 11, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. As you, Father, are in me and I'm in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me The glory that you've given me, I have given to them, so that they may be one as we are one. I and them, and you and me, that they may be completely one, so the world may know that you have sent me, and have loved them even as you've loved me. Father, I desire that those also whom you've given me may be with me where I am to see my glory which you've given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. This is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray. Eternal God, our triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, with Christians all over the planet who remember today this holy meal, we pray that this word might become the bread of life for us, (laughs) feed us, and indeed be an answer to your prayer, that we might all be one. In Jesus' name, amen. Gazing at the glory. Not that long ago, I made a trip I try to make every time I'm in the San Francisco Bay Area, and that is to go across the Golden Gate Bridge, but not to see the bridge. On the Marin County side, you can turn down to the left and go down to a copse of trees called the Muir Woods, coastal redwoods, named for John Muir, the great early environmentalist and friend of Theodore Roosevelt. There are several hundred coastal redwoods, those 1,000-year-old-plus trees (laughs) towering up to the sky. But interesting thing, Pastor, about them, you'd think that they had immensely deep roots, but not so much so as they have roots that are intertwined. And those gigantic trees hold one another up in that cove. Now, here's a fascinating thing. You never find a coastal redwood by itself. (laughs) There's no maverick coastal redwoods. They're together where they hold one another up. And that's how they've withstood centuries of lightning strikes and fires, insects, bacteria growing in the, the forest floor because they hold one another up. I guess like anything to a preacher that becomes a metaphor to me something unseen, holding them there in unity. On this World Communion Sunday, I wish that we might think together that less than 12 hours before his crucifixion, Jesus prayed for a singular thing, that we might be one. Now this isn't a prayer for uniformity because out here, even on the extremity of our personality, this opposing thumb, we we could do without it, we wouldn't want to, but out here at the extremity, we're all different, we're not uniform. He's not praying for uniformity, but he's praying for something that he calls unity. Let's look at this for just a moment and I'll take my seat. You see, in this prayer, he praise looking through the 11 in that upper room to all of those that would believe in him all the way out to the horizon as far as he could see it's it's an amazing thing there they are at that first table (laughs) the the scent of roasted lamb is still in the air (laughs) 11 shadows playing in the candlelight or the lamplight against the wall of that darkened room, breadcrumbs still on their fingers, the tannins from the Passover wine still sharp in their, in their throats. And he looks and he prays that we might be one, even as, as they are. It, it, it's, he looks through them, as it were. There's John. He looks through John and he sees the churches of, well, what is today Western Turkey and Ephesus and the churches of the Greek islands. There's Peter. He looks through him and sees what would happen 50 days later at Pentecost when 3,000 were swept. And then he sees Cornelius, that, that Roman centurion. And then there's a gap. There's a gap where Judas was who has gone from the room. There's such a thing as counterfactual history. It's actually a discipline. Counterfactual history means what might have happened if. I wonder if he thought what might have happened if Judas had not been a betrayer. There's Thomas. He looks through him. Tradition in history says to the church in India, that church in that huge country, one of the oldest churches, he looks through them and sees beyond them. Some of you may have joined that uh, website, ancestry.com. You put in a few relatives and you know, it helps build out your spiritual ancestry and you can trace your ancestry. You have to be careful tracing ancestry. That can have a double meaning. I had a relative who kept a used car too long and they traced him, but that's not what they (laughs) meant. your ancestry but you know this spiritualancestry.com? there's a sense in which every one of you if you could go back up the christian family tree are here this morning because of the witness of one of these 11 or one who was not there yet saul of tarsus paul Every one of us can trace spiritual ancestry back to them, and Jesus prays for them, and he says, I not only see them, but I see all of those who will come to the Father through them. This summer I was holding a preaching seminar in, in Paris, and we, we visited that beautiful, glistening white church that sits atop Montmartre in Paris. It's built by two Catholic men who promised God if he prospered their business, they'd build a church. And he did, and they did. That church has the largest mosaic of Jesus in the world. Hundreds of thousands of little tiles. And here's the interesting thing. Anywhere you are in that church, he's looking at you. If you stand at an oblique angle and look up at it, he's looking right at you. In the back, in the transept, anywhere you are, you can't get away from his gaze. In a sense, that becomes an emblem of this passage to me today. All through these, he's looking this morning at this his church and his table to let us know my prayer is that you might be Now, it's interesting to think about what he might have been praying that night. I could nominate a number of things. Peter was about to deny him with a curse, to call out damnation that he didn't even know him. Judas was about to betray him over... Near the temple was the house of Caiaphas, the corrupt religionist who'd hold a kangaroo in court. There was enough anxiety that could have come down on Jesus that he might have been praying about any of that, but he doesn't touch any of those things. There in that upper room, the presence of that table said, I'm praying that not only these, but stretching all the way out to the horizon of history, those who believe in you might. Be one. Hmm. Now that's not an unusual thing, even in that ancient world. In that world, the Roman Empire, a hundred million people around the Mediterranean, stitched together all kinds of races and ethnicity and politics and languages. Even before Jesus' advent, they were wondering about how do we get people to be one? One. Well, the Hebrews thought it was monotheism, the worship of the Lord God. But they weren't the only ones who thought that. Plutarch, the ancient, said if we could just all worship the same God, we'd be one. But that's never happened. (laughs) Others thought if we just understood our common humanity, we'll be one. Alexander the Great died 323 years before the advent of Jesus, and he said, I want all humanity to drink together as if it's out of a loving cup. In fact, Alexander was so obsessed with this that when he conquered people, he liked to be like them. When he conquered the barbarians, he started wearing barbarian clothes and speaking barbarian language and said, hey, let's just all be one. Let's wear the same jersey. <laughs> Didn't work. <laughs> Plato in his republic said if we could just all have the same politics and laws will be one. But none of that worked. None of it has worked. In this passage, we have what Jesus said about Christian unity. And it is a sheer mystery. He says, just as the Father is in me, and I am in the Father, and we are in you, That's how we're one. Now, if anybody understands that, see me back at the door after church. (laughs) It's a sheer mystery. There's a view of the Trinity called social Trinitarianism, and I don't want to sound like a theologian, but I do teach at a seminary, so give me just a minute. (laughs) Social Trinitarianism looks at the Trinity saying that from all eternity, the Father the Son and the Spirit have existed in a loving unity. So the work of one is the work of all, and the work of all is the work of one. Now sometimes one of them is more prominent than the other. That was called the point of the Spirit. In creation, it seemed to be the work of the Father, but the Son and the Spirit were in it. In redemption, it was the work of the Son on the cross, but the Father and the Spirit were in it. At Pentecost, the Spirit comes but the Father and Son is in it. And Jesus says that projected on the church is the mystery that creates Christian unity. There's literally nothing like it in the world. The fact that we're one has to do with unity, but not with uniformity. And this is kind of the rub on it. You see, we like to think about uniformity. If we could just all be the same. You know, there's folks that think, if we could just get the church organized right, we would have unity. Now here we are as Baptist folks. You know, Baptist folks are an interesting group. We believe that every one of our churches is autonomous and independent, full of believer priests, all of whom uh, can exercise their own consciousness, and we vote on things. That hasn't necessarily brought about unity, I don't think. You go up the street somewhere here, and here's our Presbyterian and Lutheran friends. They organize their church around presbyteries and synods, their church with a capital C. The whole thing together is the church. But all you've got to do is read the newspapers to recognize that's not working. And then our, our hierarchical friends, those who have bishops, our Anglican, Episcopal, and Catholic friends. And oh if we could just have one head of the church. The interesting thing about that is the Roman Catholic Pope is the head of the Western Catholic Church, the Patriarch of Constantinople, the Orthodox Church, and about a thousand years ago, they both sent one another to hell. And <laughs> I know John Paul met the Eastern Orthodox uh, Patriarch and they smiled at one another, but they didn't rescind where they'd sent one another. There's no way to organize the church, humanly, that brings about unity, whether we're autonomous Baptist Maastrichts or connectional churches or hierarchy. no. You see, cemeteries are organized. I have a plot in Greenwood Cemetery in Fort Worth. Every now and then I go inspect my real estate. I may be there a while. I've noticed that all of the tombstones are perfectly in line. The place is dead and it's unified. (laughs) Some of you old enough to remember ice cube trays. If you don't want what they are, you put water in them and it froze. You know those things were perfectly lined up. (laughs) Uniform, but they were ice cold. Organization doesn't bring about this unity. Some of us have lived through a time in the life of our kind of folks, our tribe of Christians, if we could just all have the same doctrine about the word of God, it would make us unified. (laughs) That created about a 20-year civil war among our tribe. Didn't make us unified. In fact, now some folks are saying other folks don't believe the Bible as much as the people who said they believe the Bible. It just goes on and on. No, it's not. Doctor say, well, what, 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 if we could, what if we could just be nice? One of the problems about Christian unity, and particularly I'm from Texas in the Southwest, here you're in the South, we think if we could just all be nice, there'd be unity and we can kind of exalt a religion of niceness. And of course, it, who could be against niceness? It's nice to be nice. But that doesn't create unity. You know in the church sometimes we're like the porcupines who got caught out in the snow mass in Canada during the first Arctic blast. They were far away from their porcupine holes or dens or homes or wherever they lived and they were gonna freeze. One of them looked at the other and said, if we don't get closer together, we're gonna freeze to death. But the closer they got together, the more they needled one another. It's not just being nice. Somebody said to dwell above with the saints in love, that'll be glory. To dwell below with some of the saints, I know that's a different story. (laughs) It's not just being, well, what is it? Well, Thomas Merton, that remarkable devotional mystic, that Catholic writer, here's a passage. He says, Christian folks, minds and judgments and their desires, their human characters and their faculties are all imprisoned in the slag of an inescapable egotism which pure love has not yet been able to refine. As long as we're on earth, the love that unites us will bring us suffering by our very contact with one another because this love is a resetting of a body of broken bones. Even saints cannot live with saints without some anguish, some pain at the differences that come between us. He put his finger on the human condition, even saints. That's why Jesus nominated something else in this passage that's so otherworldly that we have to, strained to get our minds around it did you hear he says i want you to show them the glory you've given me and i've given them so that they may be one he wants us he says to be with him where he will be to see my glory which you've given me because you've loved me before the foundation of the world. Basically, Jesus says the only way I can make them one is if they're all gazing at the glory. Now go back and look at the original 12 that he chose. I know now they're canonized. They have statues all over the world. You know, there's a million St. Matthew's churches. But look at that group as they were. Here's Peter. Peter would break up any business meeting. <laughs> Impetuous, cursing denier. But then here's James and John. If you remember their story, one gospel says they went, the other said they sent their mama to Jesus and said, Can we be the CFO and the C O O? And here, here's Thomas. We all know about Thomas. Tom just doubted the whole thing, you know. Here's Philip. Every time Philip shows up, he shows up three times in the Gospels, and every time, well, when you read him, he seems confused. He wasn't drafted in the first round of apostles. (laughs) And then look at this. Here's Simon the Zealot, who was committed to kill people like Matthew, the corrupt IRS agent. There's a story that when Jesus ascended back to heaven, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, who were kind of there on the layaway plan, looked at him and said, who did you leave your work with? And when he described the 12, they said, do you have a backup plan? (laughs) What kept them together? The only thing that kept them together was gazing at that glory. It's like the first chapter of John... The word became flesh, dwelt among us, full of grace and truth, and we beheld his glory. Even in the first miracle there at Cana and Galilee, that first big sign miracle, you know where he turned the, the water into wine. You remember what? Weddings were seven-day affairs there. When everybody tasted what Jesus had done, they said, usually... Usually, these hosts will put the best stuff out first, you know, like cake bread from Napa Valley or something, you know, $200 a bottle. Then they go down to Sam's and get the $10 bottle, you know. But, but he said, he's done this backwards. We've never tasted anything like this. Maybe he's the Lord who saves the best for last, and what they beheld his glory. Now church, I can't explain what that means. Past what he said, he said, "I'm in Him, and He's in me, and we're in there." As the air is in the bird, and the bird is in the air, as the fish is in the sea, and the sea is in the fish. There's something about gazing at the Lord. I guess it's a little like some kind of geometry, and that is, if there's a fixed point in the middle of a circle. If I get closer to that point, and you get closer to that point, we inevitably get closer to one another. It's the mystery of godliness, Paul said. (laughs) Some years ago I was preaching at uh, in Switzerland, at the European Baptist Convention's annual summer camp, uh, right at the base of uh, three beautiful Alpine peaks—the Jungfrau and the Monk and the Eiger—up at Interlaken, English-speaking Baptists get together in the summer and have a kind of summer camp. Late William Hendricks and I were preaching there, the theologian, and we decided to catch the world's highest railway. (laughs) Goes up to the top of the Jungfrau, to the Jungfrau Dawn. Well, it it was a hot day in Switzerland and the the train cars were crowded. I remember hearing at least five languages I could detect. We were kind of jammed in these cars. There's a little bit tense going up there. You think you're going to fall off the Alp before you get up there. Really, we, I think we were getting on one another's nerves. <laughs> but then you went through the final tunnel and you broke out of that tunnel into the single most magnificent thing I've ever seen at the world's highest railway station. With alpine peaks on either side. A huge glacier going all the way to the horizon. It's interesting, when we broke out of that tunnel those train cars got just as quiet as this church right now. As all those different people started gazing at the glory of that unforgettable scene, and in that moment, swallowed up by that physical, earthly, terrestrial glory, everyone felt quiet. And for that moment, we were one looking at something that was breathtaking and unequal. Now if that's true on a lower, lesser, lighter level, and a train trip up to the top of an out, how much on a higher, holier, heavier level could that be true? If we made it our spiritual discipline, To gaze not at the organization of the church, Lord help us. Not just at doctrine. But to fix our gaze like those twelve did. And we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father. As you come to this table, would you join me in gazing at the glory? Let's pray. Eternal God, our Heavenly Father, the triune God, forever in the loving mystery of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, dwelling together, immortal, invisible, in love. Help us that that mystery might imprint this moment that it might map itself over our divided, fractured, fragmented lives. Lord, we're not only not one with one another, we're not even one inside of ourselves. Sometimes we're walking civil wars and the parliament's not in anybody's hand, even in our own personalities. We pray, O oh God, in this holy moment of world communion. We may not gaze up and down the pew, at one another, or up and down the street at churches with different signs, but oh God, in this moment, in a mystery we can't explain, may we gaze at the glory at this your table And we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.